Welcome to the Pathway Podcast. This is the second week of our series, Inside Out Kingdom. Stay tuned after the sermon for this week's Next Steps. This Christmas season, our series has been Inside Out Kingdom to focus on why Jesus came, right? Why he came. And uh, there's all the, the beauty and the, the pageantry and all the, the hope and all those things that surround the birth of Jesus Christ and, and all those elements that come with it. But the reason why he came is, uh, isn't quite as, as uh, lovely of a picture, although it is very beautiful. It's not quite as, uh, you know, majestic, uh, but it actually has more impact. And what we saw last week, and we're going to talk about this week, is we're looking through the eyes of his disciples. And what did his disciples see? And next week we're going to talk about uh, the, the faith of the people who were there when Jesus came or who came after the shepherds and the wise men. But through their eyes, what did they expect to find through the gift of Christmas? And what did Jesus really come for? And so, you know, last week we, you know, we looked at the story and saw how uh, you know, the, the disciples may have been looking for one thing and they got another. And today I want to talk about, you know, aiming at the wrong target, where we may have something in our mind and, and we're very focused, we're very fixed on it, right? Sometimes we can go through life and we're not exactly sure what we, what we want, we're not exactly sure, you know, what we're aiming for, but there are times at life when you know exactly what, what is out there in front of you that you want to grab onto. You know exactly uh, what you want to put your hands around, and uh the problem is, is that doesn't still always work out, right? Sometimes uh, what we're pushing for and, and we want more than anything else just doesn't work out. And then there are, there are also experiences in life where we realize that what we were working for isn't necessarily uh, the best thing for us. And, and we may find something completely different that's, uh, that's just as good. Uh, you know, this time of year, I always, uh, I love Christmas movies. I just don't like most of, well, I, for me, I guess they are traditional Christmas movies, but, you know, when they're starring, you know, Chevy Chase or things like that, most people may not think of those as traditional Christmas movies, but they're the ones I grew up on. But no matter what Christmas movies you grow up on, no matter which ones that you love and hold dear to your heart, one thing is common among them. Everything that we have an idea about what a perfect Christmas looks like, the movie is funny or exciting or sad or endearing because they're nowhere near reaching it like through 80% of the movie. I mean, whether it's, you know, squirrels and trees brought in the house, whether it's, uh, you know, a series of, of robberies and burglaries uh, with uh, Home Alone. Uh, and even if you go back to the old black and white movies, it's like in the middle of it, you've got people wanting to commit suicide by jumping off bridges. So we may think about holiday movies being majestic, but when you actually look at it, they're all surrounded by conflict or by, you know, loss or by, you know, crazy situations happening, families getting in fights, misunderstandings that blow out of control. Uh, and even if you go, like Ron was saying, like every, uh, every Hallmark movie you want is like the same, you know, seven actors. They just move to different towns and play different characters. Uh, and even in those... You know, that, that, that woman in her 30s who finally finds true love has been divorced twice, left at the altar once, has been raising kids on her own. And so it's like, yeah, that hour and a half may have been exciting, but the previous 35 years weren't. Uh, and so 
There's not a Christmas movie I know of out there. Y'all can start texting me later about the ones that like start to finish. It's like, we showed up, everybody was happy. All the family got along. Dinner was perfect, nothing got burnt. Everyone got the gift they wanted and we all traveled home without incident and it was a joyous night. And that's the most boring Christmas movie ever, which is why they don't make it. But that and the real life part of we want this perfect holiday picture and we want this perfect thing we're shooting for, it just, it, it doesn't usually happen. And when it does, those are the points in life sometimes that are the most forgettable. So through this year, we've been talking about explorers and we've been, you know, this whole idea of, of taking new ground and this next semester we're going to be looking at, you know, now that we've taken new ground, how do we, you know, how do we strengthen that and then continue to make new discoveries in our life. Uh, and so I brought in a few people who, you know, had aimed at a target that they had this perfect idea of what they were reaching for, very focused, went for it with everything they had and didn't quite reach it. And the first one isn't quite as bad. Uh, you know, we talked about Lewis and Clark. And so Lewis and Clark, uh, you know, that they uh, were commissioned to try and find a water passageway. This is after America had, you know, been discovered and settled on the East Coast. And, and they knew about the Pacific Ocean and they knew about that coastline. They were trying to find a water passageway all the way through. And they, they discovered a lot. I mean, it was amazing. And they got, you know, but they got held up at the Continental Divide. But you now have ski resorts and everything else there. And so it wasn't all a loss. Um, but they did find the Pacific, and they did find a good way to, to get across it. So that wasn't that bad. They, they wanted a water passageway, but still at the end of the day, what they found was great. Now the next guy, Christopher Columbus. Now obviously what he found was pretty outstanding, but it was nowhere near what he was looking for. He was looking for a westward path to, to Asia. And pretty much kind of during that age of exploration in the 1500s, it was mostly a bunch of French guys, a few Spanish guys, uh, and they were just sailing all over the world. And the whole goal was for them to figure out how to get from Europe to Asia. And so they're like, it's way all the way around Africa. Let's see if we can go west and we can make it there. And since we figured out that whole round earth thing, let's, let's try west. And so Christopher Columbus, he left Europe to find that western route. He was the first explorer to discover America and then to return and talk about it. You can talk about Vikings and Newfoundland and everything else, but he's the first one who actually like found it, came back, found it, came back, kept coming back a couple of times. But he died penniless, died broke, still believing he had found the route to Asia. That's why they called Native American Indians, because he thought he had found the Indies. And so, uh, you know, he did something amazingly great, but at his, on his deathbed, had almost nothing to show for it. People weren't that excited about what he had done. Uh, at least his financiers weren't. And uh, he still believed that he had found something he hadn't. And then you've got a guy named Jacques Cartier who he came and he was like, all right, we figured out finally, finally, that New England is not China. And it took him, took him a couple of decades, honestly, to figure this out. But at that point, he's like, all right, not China. We still want to get to China, so we're, we haven't dug a Panama Canal yet, so we're going to try and figure out a way through here. And so he was one of the first people to really try and just go inland. And he was up in Canada, and he went through, in the, I believe, the St. Lawrence River, and he made it all the way to Montreal. And so he had got further in there. And, uh, and so he, he, he did well about it, but still yet he was trying to find a way. And he heard when he was around Montreal... Uh, which there's a lot of comedians come from Canada. I don't know if you know that. It's kind of a weird percentage, but 
they played a joke on him and they said there's this 2,000 mile river that leads to Asia. And later in life, he just, uh, people figured out it actually just went to Louisiana. And so, um, you know, all these people who you think of as great explorers, and because they were, because they were, they had a focus about what they wanted and they were dead set and they spent a lot of time trying to achieve simply that, but they were aiming at the wrong target. They just didn't know it, right? When they set out, they had no idea that what they were aiming for was completely out of reach, but what they would find would honestly be even better. I mean, at least I, I think so. We're here in the middle of what they were searching, and so I'm kind of glad they did the work and didn't just say, yep, that's not China. Let's go back east. And so here, as we look at this today and as we look at one more summer about the disciples and how they viewed Jesus and how they viewed his coming and what the Messiah would be like, just understand that when they set out to follow Jesus, the target, the end game about what Jesus did on the cross was not their thought, right? That's not what they expected. The idea that the millennial reign would be thousands of years later and it wouldn't start right then, that is not what they expected. What they expected and the focus that they had is that they are following the Messiah, he is going to become king, and Israel is going to rule this world for a thousand years. That was their target. That's what they were shooting for, and that's why they were excited, right? That's a whole lot more exciting than, hey, your leader's going to get killed. Y'all really aren't going to do that great among uh, the people, at least, you know, for those three and a half years. And uh, after that, most of y'all are going to die too. So that's the target they hit. And in the end, they actually realized how beneficial that was. Much better and much greater than had they actually got what they wanted, which was a king that ruled for a thousand years. Because that would come later, but what they had in front of them and what they received was a savior, a Messiah, who came to offer salvation to the world. A spiritual salvation that would benefit everyone for all time. So, I want us to take a a look in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start there today, then we're going to jump into Mark, Mark 8 and 10. Uh, But in Luke chapter 1, we're going to see an early picture of kind of the conflict that comes from having maybe expectations and joy in a moment, but then realizing tough things are going to follow. Whether you see yourself in life right now as someone who is struggling or someone who is successful, the difficulties along the way shape you. They shape you in ways that if everything was simple and easy, that you wouldn't grow near as much. You know, when, when you, we think to ourselves that if life was just, you know, that picture that we want, right? If, if the holidays were just exactly like we wanted, that we, we all want that, we can work hard. You really can work hard and bite your lip and make one good day, right? You can make that happen, provided everybody else in the house also bites their lip and doesn't say, say something stupid and cause a fight. But for your whole life to say, I want everything to work out. I don't want financial difficulty. I want my job to go well. I want my relationships to go well. I want everything to be easy. And if everything was easy, if God would just give me everything easy, well, then everything else would fall in line too. I'd be a better Christian. I'd be a better follower. My family would follow God better. It it would just all work out. But the reality is that those things, those targets, if we hit those, they don't actually determine very well at all whether or not we're going to follow God, whether we're going to grow closer to him, whether we're going to go stronger in our faith. 
Honestly, if we had no problems at all, we probably wouldn't grow stronger in our faith. We wouldn't be asked to rely on Jesus more. We wouldn't be forced to look at what really matters and have to make hard decisions on that. And so, whether you see yourself as a success or a struggle, understand understand that life is always going to be difficult, but God's promises are always true. And the path of sacrifice may be the walk that God wants you to go down. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 25, this is very soon after the birth of Jesus and when they take him to the, the temple. In Luke chapter 1, verse 25, it says, At that time there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was a righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. Now that part of the prophecy is the beautiful part to hear, right? As a new parent, Mary and Joseph, and someone comes up and starts talking great things about your baby. And, uh, but then it continues. In verse 33, it says, Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, the child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. So, when you're the parent of a newborn, one or two-year-old, I got to see, uh, oh, Nuvia posted pictures. They went to uh, the store and, you know, you push a baby around in a stroller, you get looks, people smile, people probably said something, I don't know, you can tell me about it later. But, you know, when the baby's one or two years old, people just come up to you. Now, sometimes strange people come up to you and, like, want to hold your baby and stuff like that. That's, you know, you can mace them, it's it's fine. Um, But... They come up and they talk and they talk about your cute baby or in a restaurant, you know, the kids are like trying to get their attention and so you'll have people making faces at them and everything else. And it's all cute and adorable, right? You know, when your kid's three or four and someone comes up to you in a store and says, oh, I saw your child, you start looking around and see what they grabbed off the shelf or if they're climbing something. But at one to two years old, it's all cute. It's all cuteness and people come up and do that. And so here you have Simeon coming up to Mary and Joseph and they had been visited by an angel, right? So... Some guy on the way to the temple is not that crazy. Jack talked about the crazy part two weeks ago. Um, but then when the guy starts saying, you know, goes from cute and, oh, this is nice, to your baby is going to make people rise and is going to make people fall and a sword will pierce your heart also. You know, at that point, it becomes that strange guy and we go the other direction. All right? We start walking around him. I mean, very early on in the life of Jesus, his parents were reminded that, yes, he is our son. Yes, this is a great moment in time. However, his life is going to be one of conflict and of sacrifice. But his conflict that he will endure and the sacrifice that he will make as the Messiah is going to benefit the whole world. And so they were reminded of that very early, but the disciples also had to be reminded of that. 
Now, in the book of Mark, the book of Mark is a, kind of a shorter book. It gets to the point really fast of the end of Jesus' ministry. But if you read kind of the first eight chapters of the book of Mark, really you have just example after example after example of all these different miracles that Jesus is performing, of all these great things that Jesus is doing, proving to his disciples these are the miracles that only the Messiah does, right? These are the miracles that only the Son of God, only the Son of Man performs. And so for eight chapters, you have Jesus just building a resume, putting it in front of his disciples, making sure that they know who he is. And so then in verse 27, we, we pick up the story there. And in Mark 8, 27, it says, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee, went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. And as they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter replied, you are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And of course, you can find out later that early on, Jesus didn't want people just openly saying he's the Messiah, especially when they were close to Jerusalem, because he wasn't there to start a revolt, right? When they got further away from Jerusalem, kind of out in the outskirts, he would say, yep, I'm the Messiah, because those people, you know, far away, they, they, wouldn't, they couldn't do anything, uh, like try and make him king. And so here he asked them, and he says, who do you say I am? You've seen all these miracles. You've seen all these signs. You've heard all my sermons. You, you've walked with me and seen my life. And they correctly said, you are the Messiah. And so in verse 31, it says, Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. And as he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. This is not a good PR move, right? If you're trying to get us to continue to follow you, Jesus... You're going down the wrong path. But Jesus turned around, looked at his disciples in verse 33, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, And for the sake of the good news, for the sake of the gospel, you will save it. So we've, you know, if you hear those verses about, you know, that if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it and everything else, understand that those came right after the first time that Jesus put the pointed question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they said, the Messiah. So as soon as they is they, after watching all these miracles happen, after seeing his life and everything else, understanding who Jesus was, as soon as they said it out loud, right, said the thing they thought out loud, you are the Messiah, bam, first thing, I've got to suffer. I've got to suffer many terrible things. I've got to be rejected by the elders. I've got to be killed. But three days later, I'll rise from the dead. So bad things are going to happen, but three days later, I'll rise. And he threw that in there. He wasn't just going to end them. I'm going to get killed. He still told them the end of the story. You know, the target you had was that everybody will accept me and things are going to go great. The actual thing we're going to hit is that I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. 
but in the end, I'll rise again. And so he told, them to the, told this to them in Peter's first reaction, who is also the person who first said, you are the Messiah. So the first one who would say out loud that, Jesus, we know who you are, is also the one who said, but you can't say that, right? We don't need to start talking about failure here, right? No one wants to jump on the bandwagon. Uh, yeah, come work for our company. We're pretty sure that we're creating a product that everyone's going to benefit from and everyone's going to love, but we're probably going to go bankrupt in the process and all the investors are going to lose their money. But in the end, society will benefit from what we just created, right? You, no one goes and works for that company, or at least not if you want to make money, right? Not if you want to be successful, now, the people who do, I mean, that happens all the time, actually, where people, people who invent things or create new processes or discover, you know, the Western Hemisphere and then go back home thinking they found the Eastern Hemisphere and dying penniless. I mean, a whole lot of people that do amazing things, actually, their life shows no benefit from it at all. And Jesus is saying, you're following me and I'm the best leader you can follow but where we're going to end up is I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to have to sacrifice everything. People are going to reject me. The good news is, is I'm going to get killed and then come back to life three days later. That's the good news. And so Jesus told them this here. He told them if you were just trying to, you know, give, you know hold on to your own way, that's not going to work. You can't be my follower. You have to give that up. Peter, you're looking at things from a worldly point of view. You're not looking at them through my eyes, not looking through a spiritual lens. And he tells them this again in Mark chapter 9, right? Once again, he tells them that he's going to, you know, be sacrificed. He's going to die. And in Mark chapter 10, he tells it to them again, right as they're about to enter Jerusalem. And so at this point, they have seen the fact that the religious rulers don't like Jesus. They have seen all of that come to fruition, and now they're about to enter Jerusalem. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, it says, They were now on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe or astonishment. And that you have this man who's walking into a place where we know people hate him, and he's just going in confidently. And the disciples are looking at him with awe, with astonishment, and following him. And then it says, And the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. And so the disciples knew that Jesus was doing something incredibly brave. Peter may have still been holding on to the fact that it may be incredibly stupid, but still yet, they were in awe. But everybody else was just in fear. They were worried what was going to happen. And so what did Jesus do? Once again, verse 33, listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priest, to the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. And here you have where he, he tells the ending, after three days, I'll rise again. But he starts getting even more and more and more detailed. Then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request, he asked. And they replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on the right, the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? 
Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they replied, we are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. So, again, these are two stories that you may hear if you're in church very often, but you don't necessarily think about them going together, right? When James and John asked to be on either side of Jesus, you wouldn't think that would come right after he says, just remember, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be despised, I'm going to be killed, and the good news is three days later I'm going to be brought back to life. And James and John, after that third day, what we would like is to be on your right and left. You know, if you go in the book of Matthew, their, their mother was involved and, you know, there's talk and you can talk about whether or not they were actually kin to each other and family and, and everything else. But James and John, again, here at the end, when Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, I still always wonder in astonishment because when Jesus was crucified, instead of them, when we think of Jesus crucified, right, what do we do? We paint a bunch of eggs and hide them in the grass and we celebrate, right? That when we think of Jesus crucified, that's Easter. That's, that's something to celebrate. We have, you know, we have, you know, movies about it and everything else. When Jesus was actually crucified, they all ran in fear and they all ran away. Still yet again, to me, what they expected to happen didn't happen. Even with Jesus telling them that we're about to go into the hardest part of this, we're about to suffer, we're about to have to go through the difficult things I've told you we're going to go through. But I want you to remember, at the end of it, I will be alive. I will be raised from the dead. All of the promises of God will come true. Now, in my mind, if they truly understood that, and even if they just truly believed that three days later Jesus was going to come back to life, and then he was going to come on a war horse swinging a sword and they were going to take the world over and rule, right? I would think that they would be acting different at the point when Jesus actually died. Maybe not. But all I know here is that right after your leader tells you he's about to walk into a city and be killed, it doesn't seem like it's the opportune time to ask for a promotion. But James and John, still yet looking for a target that wasn't intended for them, Wanting something, having an expectation that did not match up with what God expected them to do. Said, can we help rule? Can we be in charge? And so Jesus answered them and everyone else. In verse 41, says, when the ten other disciples, see, here's the thing, Christmas dinner and someone says something makes everybody mad. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, to give his life as a ransom for many. So... This is the third time I've told you, once a chapter, I'm going here to suffer. 
I'm going to be killed, but I will rise again. And what do they do? Peter starts off by saying, Jesus, don't say that. Don't say that. Here in Mark chapter 10, James and John ask for a promotion. And once again, he has to remind them, y'all are looking at things through your point of view and not through mine. You're not focusing on the spiritual thing, Peter. You're not focusing on the spiritual things, James and John. You're focusing on what you want. You're focusing on the target you want to hit, and I'm not concerned with that. You're focusing on the expectations that aren't godly expectations. You're focusing on the wrong things. And here he says to the 12, and he says, Remember that whoever wants to be a leader must be your servant. If you're looking to be first, what that means is that you're going to subject yourself to everybody else. It has to be different. You know, during this Christmas season, it's a time of celebration. It's a time of wonder. It's a time of all the, the special moments that we have an opportunity to spend with family and friends and everything else. It's also a time that we can be self-centered. It's a time that we can be upset if we don't get what we want. It can be a time where we're upset if it feels like that we put more into it than everybody else did, right? It's a time that we can get upset if we go into a moment wanting everything to be perfect and then someone says something or does something that throws all that off. And even if they are wrong, I mean, we get mad because our expectations weren't met. I just want you to understand that in our life, we are naturally people, even the disciples walking with Jesus are naturally people who have to fight constantly against simply looking to what we desire in our heart when we haven't weighed whether or not that's what God wants. See, the story of Christmas of Jesus coming was told to Mary and Joseph by angels. After his birth, they were given a quick reminder that this is great, this baby is phenomenal. been waiting my whole life to see him. God promised that I would get to see the Messiah before I died. Y'all have a good one. And remember, he's going to pierce your soul. The story of Christmas is beautiful. But if we lose sight that the reason Jesus came and that the opportunity that we have to celebrate is because he suffered and sacrificed himself for us and that what he wants out of this, have fun. Right? We had a great party Wednesday night. That was wonderful. Absolutely. Have fun. Enjoy each other's company. Do nice things for others. Open gifts and love them. Even if you don't like them, pretend. Have a great time. But in the meantime, and while you're doing all those things, take moments specifically to worship God, to praise Him, and to serve Him. Because He called us to sacrifice too. He called us to sacrifice some of the expectations we have that we focus on those instead of setting our sight on what God would have us do. That we're so focused on simply what we want, what we want financially, what we want out of relationships, what we want out of church together, what, what we want out of all these things. We focus simply on those instead of what God is calling us to do in our relationships, in our job, in our community, in our church. And I can tell you this, that the disciples missed every target that they were shooting for. But in the end, after Jesus died, and after he came back three days later, like he said, 
they realized that they had been aiming at the wrong thing. And the rest of their lives were dedicated to serving and to following. And so let's not have to go through the process of getting our expectations crushed just to come out on the other side and finally realize what's important. Yeah, enjoy all those wonderful things about this time of year. But stop and ask yourself, because of what Jesus has given me, what would God have me do? I want to close up this morning, and as we do, if you're here and during this Christmas season, you know who God is, you know who Jesus is, you know the basic facts of the Bible, you may even know it well, but you have never made that decision that, yes, I believe. Yes, I trust in him. Uh I'm going to put it all on him instead of me. Titus chapter 3, some of my my favorite verses. In verse 4 it says, But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. And because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. If you're here during this holiday season, we're obviously here every Sunday worshiping Jesus Christ, but if you've still had questions about him, I want you to know that the gift of Christmas back then when he came was to give us the gift of Christmas forever, which is an opportunity to simply put our, our belief in him and our trust in him and say, it's not based on what I do. It's not whether I'm good enough. It's not whether I serve enough or anything else, it is just simply because of his mercy, because he offers it, because of his grace that he gives us a gift we don't deserve. So if you're here and you have never made that decision to believe in Jesus Christ, that's all it takes this morning. And when you say, yes, I believe, when you make that decision, then you can have confidence that you'll inherit eternal life. Thank you for listening. We challenge you to take some next steps this week. One, what things that you enjoy today have sidetracked you from investing time in things that fulfill the purposes of Christ? Commit to the things of God first and you will find satisfaction and still have time for things in life that you enjoy. Two, determine how you need to change priorities and relationships in order to bring Jesus to others. For more information about small groups, Pathway Kids, or anything Pathway related, contact us at pathwaybaptist.com connect.